House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Now we've got another great guest joining us, and he's been an author of several books. Um, definitely, um, this is a great one I've been listening to. It's called Hell's Princess. And uh, joining us is the author, Harold Schechter. Thank you for being here. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. So uh, I had no idea. This, uh, so uh, about this, this was a uh, story about Belle Gunnis, and she is a serial killer of many men. Uh, correct. Yes, a uh, female serial killer. Um, of which, you know, there actually have been quite a few, although they tend to uh, commit their crimes differently from male serial killers. You know, they often murder with poison. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Bell, um, whose crimes were discovered in 1908, you know, is a very unusual, possibly unique case because... She also um, enjoyed chopping up the bodies of her victims after they were dead, um, which, you know, that kind of butchery you don't usually find in women serial killers. Yeah. Now, this, this happened in the, um, what, in the late 1800s? Uh, really more like um, the very early 20th century. Uh, as I said, her crimes were uncovered in 1908, and she had probably been at it, you know, for about four or five years before that. Wow, that's crazy. But, 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 yeah. How many, but, I mean, she had, you know, she was, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, that was how many people did we uh, think that she killed, or how many did they discover on her property? Uh, well, they discovered um, roughly a dozen. I say roughly because it was a little uh, difficult to say with precision because she had a habit of tossing the remains of more than one victim into these pits she dug in her hog lot. Um, and also, uh, you know, the property wasn't completely dug up. The searchers basically stopped after they had dug up about a dozen. Um, <laughs> she also bumped off a couple of husbands before that for the insurance money. Um, but in terms of the victims that she lured to her farm and then killed um, about a dozen. Wow. Now, now the first uh, two husbands of hers she killed... Uh, kind of, mm-hmm. she, she lived with them, were married, and um, mm-hmm. and she offed them, sort of. Uh, maybe explain, um, was there, uh, so that was a pretty normal, like she wasn't at a serial killer state in the very beginning. Well, I'm not sure I'd use the word normal. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> oh, look but, at today. Um, yeah, yeah, but... Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, that sort of crime um, was, you know, not at all unknown. I mean, there had been a number of very, very notorious uh, women poisoners uh, back in the late 19th century in the United States um, who killed husbands and siblings and even children, um, you know, sometimes for the insurance money, 
sometimes because they had become too much of a burden, you know, to take care of. Um, so in that sense, you know, those, I wouldn't have written my book, you know, if, if Bell Gunnett had stopped, you know, with just um, poisoning a couple of husbands for insurance money. Um, but, uh, you know, that isn't what ended up making her so notorious. Right. Uh, so now after that, how did she start on this? Um, like, what, what was the basic um, scenario um, that, that, that she used? Or the, kind of explain how she started getting into the serial killing business. Yeah, I mean, was it yeah. more of a Black Widow situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, uh, uh, I mean, well, her motive, her modus operandi, you know, after she killed her second husband, um, was uh, she was a Norwegian immigrant, uh, and she began putting matrimonial ads in Scandinavian language newspapers throughout the Midwest, uh, in which she advertised herself not entirely accurately <laughs> as a comely <laughs> widow. Um, and, uh, <laughs> okay. she had this, yeah, she had this, um, you know, large farmstead, very handsome property. You know, she was looking for a man to become her partner, possibly with a view to matrimony. Uh, and uh, that applicant, you know, should, uh, you know, be, be guys who had some money because she would expect them to invest in the property. Um, so she, you know, she began to lure these lonely Norwegian, mostly bachelors, uh, to this farm. Uh, and, uh, then, you know, she would apparently, we don't know absolutely a hundred percent for sure, but she would apparently then, you know, feed them, uh, a nice hearty Norwegian meal, um, which was spiked with arsenic, um, and, uh, and then, Polished them off with, by bludgeoning them in a skull and then drag their corpses down to, um, the cellar of her house and chop, chop up the bodies. So, you know, there, there certainly was some kind of mercenary motive, um, but that doesn't really account for, you know, the atrocity of her crimes. Um, first of all, she was already pretty well off, so it's not as though she desperately needed the money. Um, and secondly, it doesn't account for the evident pleasure she took, you know, in committing this kind of uh, butchery, because uh, she could have as easily disposed of the bodies without dismembering them first. So, uh, you know, there was some other sadistic component to the crimes, um, which made them, you know, very, very horrific uh, at the time, and, you know, still very horrific to contemplate. So this wasn't a a slow process because poison is generally a slow process. This was rather quick. Oh yeah, yeah. I think she would, uh, you know, the guys, you know, would not die immediately, um, but they would fall ill, and I, you know, she was basically, you know, trying to incapacitate them, um, you know, because these were all farmers who were strong guys. I mean, there was some evidence. Uh, that her last victim, you know, had struggled with her um, because they found in clutched uh, in one of the hands, dismembered hands of the corpse, you know, some hair. So apparently, so she, you know, would have uh, administered the poison to incapacitate them, and then apparently she would, um, you know, deliver, you know, uh, a coup de gras 
um, you know, by hitting them in the head with some kind of sledgehammer or something, uh, and then and then chop off their bodies. So, when you say that, that she, <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around this, she would run ads, okay. almost like almost like a, a Craigslist looking for a husband. I mean, exactly. How how did? How do you respond to something like that? Do you just show up to the farmhouse and say, "Hey, I'm I'm here." I mean, how does that work? No, but, yeah. Well, um, you know, again, back then uh, when you couldn't just swipe on your cell phone or something, <laughs> you know, it was done um, through the mails. You know, she uh, would receive um, uh, lots of letters. I mean, according to the local postman, you know, she would be inundated with uh, letters from these guys, and she would you know, sometimes conduct pretty extensive correspondence with them. Uh, and she would weed out, you know, candidates that she didn't think were suitable, either because they didn't have enough money. Um, she was also looking for men without a lot of family connections, so there wouldn't be a lot of people who became suspicious when they never showed up again. Um, so, yeah, so this was done via mail. I mean, there's one, her, her final victim, uh, was a guy named, uh, Andrew Helgelian. Uh, she and he corresponded over a course of 18 months, and uh, there are about 80 or so extant letters still, um, you know, which really, uh, shed light on, on, you know, how insidious she was in luring these guys to the farm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it is sort of the equivalent of, you know, Craigslist murder these days. Um, but yes, her, her, uh, you know, her ads. Uh, yeah. Cause, cause here's my point. We're looking at a course of, okay, from 1902, let's go all the way to 1908. And so we're looking at six years and, you said one gentleman she corresponded with for approximately a year and a half. So was she was she already involved with one when she was already selecting another? Uh, yeah, evidently, you know, we don't, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity about, you know, her exact methods. I mean, you know, she apparently um, died. <laughs> we don't know. I mean, you know, at the climax of all this, we're not absolutely sure of even that. So, you know, the only real evidence we have of her of her method um, consists of, you know, the, the existing letters between her and Helgeline, you know, the testimony of the post, you know, postmaster uh, about the amount of mail she received and so on and so forth. Um, but apparently once she had invited a guy to her farm, uh, she, you know, and, and she was sure that he had the money with him or, or he wired for the money, uh, and she had the money in her possession, she got rid of it right away. Um, but uh, she, you know, she was probably already, you know, combing through her mail looking for her next victim. So... So money, so we're looking at a common theme here. Money was her motive. Mm -hmm. She was selecting well, you know, yeah. wealthy bachelors. Well, they weren't wealthy, but they had some of them had a fair amount of money, um, but they all had 
you know, a relatively substantial amount of money. So money was, you know, there's some one historian has called her Bluebeard with a profit motive. Um, and, you know, I think that captures something of the complexity of her motives. She was, by all accounts, a very, very money-hungry person. Uh, at the same time, um, she had already acquired a fairly substantial amount of money from having bumped off her two husbands and collected on their insurance policies. And she was also, you know, the owner of this fairly handsome, substantial farmstead in LaPorte, Indiana. So, you know, it wasn't that she was desperate for money. There, you know, there's some cases of earlier female poisoners, you know, who are really living in very, very dire circumstances. But at the same time, you, you know, you, you, you know, this is why she really was a female serial killer, because you can't attribute you know, the, uh, you know, the extent of her crimes purely to mercenary motives. You know, there's something else going on. You know, there are other ways, and there are other ways even back then, you know, for women to support themselves, you know, than by luring lonely bachelors to their, you know, homes and, and, and killing them and chopping them up. You know, there is something else going on there. You know, there's a certain amount of, what I would say is, you know, sadistic pleasure in inflicting this kind of butchery on the bodies of her victims. So, well, let, let's look at that. I mean, we're we're kind of you know jesting about it, and and I did catch on to the word comely. You know, I I choose the word. She was a rather unfortunate looking woman, <laughs> but. <laughs> But but what do you think happened in her past? That, what led mm -hmm. her up up to this point? Well, you know, we don't know for sure because you know, as with virtually all criminals of that kind, you know, they're basically total obscure non-entities up until the moment that you know they start making the front pages for having you know gone on these horrible crime sprees. So there aren't a lot of you know, records about her early life. I mean, there, she grew up in a, a little village in Norway called Selbu. Um, she was the daughter of a poor tenant farmer. Um, you know, the only records that really exist are things like baptismal records and so on. Uh, there were stories about her that began to circulate uh, later on after her crimes were discovered but it's hard to know how much validity, you know, to give them. You know, they, they often have the feel of sort of urban legends. You know, there was a story, for example, that when she was a teenager, she was impregnated by the son of a wealthy landowner who then beat her up and caused her to miscarry, and that oh. this was a source of her hatred for men. But, but again, you know, it's hard to know if, if that's really true or not. What well, one thing we could probably safely say, uh, because this is common to the kinds of criminals we now call serial murderers, you know, is that they often do suffer a lot of childhood humiliation. And, uh, and there is some evidence that that was the case uh, with Belle, you know, that because of, you know, she, her, her, her family was so very poor, and, uh, you know, the kinds of drudgery that she was forced to perform, 
as a child, you know, that she was looked upon in the village, you know, with a certain amount of scorn and contempt and so on. But again, it's all very, very speculative. You know, we, we just don't have enough information about her background or her childhood, you know, to know what created that kind of psychopathology. Yeah, but we can we can kind of piece it together a little bit by her actions. Uh, for example, um, you said something that was very key that caught my attention, that she would oftentimes she would dispose of the bodies in, I believe you said, her hog pen. Correct. Now, now t today we all know that if you really, really want to get rid of a body, you're going to feed it to hogs because they will eat anything and leave actually very little behind. So, you know, yeah. to me, that shows a lot of premeditation, and she gave a lot of thought to this. Well, her crimes were absolutely premeditated. There's no question about that. And that's, you know, one of the things that makes her so very sinister. I mean, that comes across very, very powerfully, you know, if you read the correspondence between her and Andrew Algelian, you know, the, uh, you know, the really diabolical way she spent a year and a half, you know, luring this poor guy into her clutches. So, yeah, uh, that's certainly the case. It, it doesn't seem to be the case that she fed the, um, you know, the, the dismembered bodies to her hogs. Uh, she apparently had one of her handymen dig these pits, which were supposedly for garbage disposal, and then she would toss the body parts and gunny sacks into these pits. But, you know, there's a there's a there's a degree of degrading, you know, the bodies, degrading these victims, you know, just treating them like farm animals, both in the way she chopped them up and then tossing them into this, you know, disgusting hog lot. You know, that I think you're right. I mean, that speaks volumes about her hatred, you know, her hatred of men. You know, where exactly, you know, this exactly where the source of that hatred is. Again, we don't know for sure, but well, um, I, I don't, I don't know what kind of notes they they took back then. But uh, was there any signs, you know, and 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 forgive this question, but were there any signs of sexual mutilation on these bodies? Um, yeah, well, I'm not sure that the, no, none that I know of. I mean, partly because I don't, you know, the condition of the bodies. Um, you know, was so, you know, the bodies were so decomposed and so on for the most part that I don't think that, um, that uh, you know, that that could be easily determined. And I'm not even sure really how much, uh, you know, how much, um, you know, how, how the degree to which the bodies were autopsied or anything post-mortem. Um, but as far as I know, I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, and I have to confess, well, I certainly didn't come across any any reference to that. Yeah, because because that would give us a little bit of insight in, into her mindset mm -hmm. whenever she committed these murders. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Although I'm not sure what phrase to use. I was going to say icing on the cake, but that would be appropriate. <laughs> but you know, I mean, just you know, even without that, you know, the extent to which she mutilated the bodies you know, it was so, you know, so extreme and so horrific that, uh, you know, that, that it, that's indicative, again, of this, you know, this hatred of, you know, of men. Um, I was just going to ask, Harold, the, um, 
the last handyman that she had was eventually mm-hmm. accused of killing her in the fire. Now, yeah. now she, she, sure. she was having an affair with him as well, and then mm-hmm. she kicked him out eventually because she found another guy. Why didn't she kill right. him? Like, why, What was different about him, or do we know? Well, she did um, have a number of handymen that she would, you know, conduct these sexual relationships with while they were living with her. Uh, uh, you know, he was a useful, like, you know, he was a useful man to her. Uh, you know, there's some evidence that he perhaps might have even been something of an accomplice in her crimes. Um, there's certainly strong suggestion that he was aware of her her murders and certainly the murder of the last victim, Helgelian. Um, so, you know, I, I have always assumed uh, that it was partly, you know, her sense of, that she could dominate. His name was Ray Lanthier, you know, that she could dominate Ray, you know, put him to some, you know, productive use. You know, it's hard to know how much, you know, how much longer he would have survived. Um, but I think he served as a useful tool for her uh, for a while. So, yeah, I just I just kind of thought that um, it's strange because he did if he did know about the um, her conduct with these victims that she would mm-hmm. just let him go, like let you know basically replaced him with another guy and let him uh, go because he was quite angry. He seemed like he uh, still really cared for her. So uh, I, I would think right. she would be worried that he um, would tell the people, would would let people know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think she was worried uh, at the point at which they had their rift, which is why, among other reasons, she tried to get him declared insane. Uh, and, of course, he... Oh, what's going on? What's going on here? Burned down the house. He would have. That would have been his motive, murdering her. Um, so it's very, very possible. I mean, one possibility is, as and again, this is one of the reasons my book is called the Mystery of Belgunis. You know, we, you know, this this mystery still clings to the whole question of what ultimately happened to her. Uh, you know, there are many, many people who believe uh, that she. Torch the house herself, you know, that this whole thing at the end, which, you know, we haven't described, was a setup. And, you know, she had, you know, she had orchestrated this precisely in order to get Ray Lanthier, you know, convicted and hanged. Right. Right. I mean, so, and there's also suspicions that she didn't really die in the fire um, as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, yeah, I mean, they, you know, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, the situation was, you know, that uh, after, you know, she murdered Helgelian after spending, again, 18 months um, cultivating the relationship and, and finally succeeding in luring him to the farm and then getting him to wire all his money uh, from his hometown bank to Laporte. Uh, as soon as the money came, she murdered him. In the meantime, she had sent Ray Lanfear off on this wild goose chase, uh, but he returned early. And, and there's some suggestion, you know, that he, 
you know, he witnessed her, her murder of Helgelion, you know, was possibly blackmailing her, you know, he, uh, uh, you know, was starting to pose a real problem to Bell. She couldn't murder him at that point because, you know, he was out of the house. Um, and then Helgelion's brother discovered uh, these letters from Bell Gunnis, uh in his missing brother's possession, you know, in, in the farmhouse of his missing brother. Uh, he said he was going off to Indiana and then never returned. And, and so the brother was starting to, uh, you know, poke around and, and uh, it, things were really closing in on Bell. Um, so she went into town, made out her will, uh, told her lawyer that she was afraid that Raylan Fear was going to murder her. And that very night, you know, her house burned to the ground and they found in the cellar uh, the charred remains of this woman clutching the bodies of three children. The three children, you know, were indisputably Belle's children, um, but the woman, who was originally assumed to be Belle, you know, was missing her head. The corpse was missing its head. Oh, how uh, convenient. And the head, yeah. And so the corpse was missing its head. You know, at first there was some thought, well, you know, maybe the head just, you know, disintegrated in the heat of the fire and so on. Um, but after Bell's crime, and it, it, you know, at that point, Bell was portrayed in the newspaper as this heroic mother who had awakened in the middle of the night, and there was this terrible conflagration, and she had rushed to try to save her children, and they all died in the fire. Um, very shortly after that, Helgelian's brother uh, came to Laporte um, and uh, was looking around for some evidence that his brother had been there, and along with Bell's current handyman at the time, a guy named Maxon, they began poking around in the in the yard at these weird spots that seemed to have been relatively recently dug up. And they discovered Helgelian's body. And then they began to dig through the yard, and they uncovered all these other remains. So then it became clear the kind of monster Belgonis was. And at that point... You know, once they discovered, you know, again, how diabolical she was, um, they began to think that perhaps that wasn't Belle's body in the cellar after all, you know, that she had lured some woman to the farm, murdered her, decapitated her, staged the whole thing and gotten away with a crime. Uh, and, you know, we don't know to this day exactly what happened. I mean, that's a mystery that has persisted, you know, for over a 100 years. There are still historians of crime who are trying to determine, you know, whether that corpse was Bell's or whether perhaps she had gotten away. Now, let, let me ask this. If I'm understanding what you just said correctly, it was him and a handyman that began to dig up these, these mass graves. At the discovery of the first body, I would have stopped and called in the police. <laughs> Is that what oh, yeah. happened? Yeah. Yes, that uh, okay. As soon as they dug up the first one, they contacted the local sheriff. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, a, a bunch of uh, lawmen and, and uh, you know, other uh, authority figures immediately came to the farm and, you know, the, the uh, medical examiner and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Helgelian's brother and Maxon, you know, as soon as they dug up the first corpse, they got in touch with the authorities. Um, and then what happened was, 
the farm becomes an incredible tourist attraction. <laughs> you know, the Sunday after these uh, bodies um, were exhumed, about 20,000 people descended on the farm. They were running excursion trains from Chicago. Um, they were setting up, you know, it was a carnival. Oh, yeah. Uh, there were people. P.T. Yeah. P- P- Barnum would have had a field day with that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, but, there were people, you know, yeah. Now, if she was, pl- okay, I'm trying to put all this together in my head as a law enforcement mm-hmm. officer and also I'm very, very interested in forensics, but mm-hmm. if, if she was planning on faking her own death, let's say, just to kind of get away from this, you know, it's getting a little bit too mm-hmm. hot for me here, so I'm going to fake my own death. Yeah. We know that she had no compunction whatsoever of killing men or, you know, potential bachelors or husbands. But was there any females that came up missing around that time that would kind of explain this headless female body? Well, I mean, not specifically. However, we do know for sure that she was capable of killing females because one of the corpses that was dug out of her hogwa um, was that of her own uh, 16-year-old foster daughter, uh, a young woman named Jane. Yeah. Um, She, you know, Belle, again, who had this very, very complicated relationship to children, you know, there was this weirdly maternal quality to her, according to you know, the testimony of her contemporaries, and she was always very desperate, you know, to have children, and at some point, she persuaded, she persuaded um, uh, the fam- uh, a family she was close to, to, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting, but to turn over um, uh, this newborn infant to her. The mother died uh, in childbirth, and the father was already very, very burdened, you know, with raising a bunch of other kids. Uh, and he agreed to turn over this little girl named Jenny to Belle. Uh, she was never formally adopted, but Belle raised her from infancy. And then, um, again, around 19, you know, early 1908, late 1907, uh, Belle announced to people that she was sending Jenny off to a seminary in California, uh, and then Jenny disappeared. Mm. And uh, apparently, again, we don't know for sure, but you know, but the the you know the strong the strong senses that Jenny had become aware, you know, of what was going on in the farm, um, and she it would have been hard not to at that point. Uh, so Belle, you know, murdered and dismembered her own 16-year-old stepdaughter, uh, foster daughter. Yeah, well, she very well so, to take her the same here. path as the handyman. Yeah. So, so you know, to answer your question, she was certainly capable of murdering, you know, a member of her own sex. Uh, but we, there, but but there is no record of any specific woman, you know, who had gone missing. Uh, uh, although there was talk at the time, you know, there were certain witnesses who claimed that, um, you know, that they had, you know, that they had seen some woman arrive at the farm from Chicago, um, you know, that perhaps Belle had hired as a maid or something and, and who disappeared. 
because yeah, as I listen to this story, I'm kind of I'm kind of reminded of a, a situation right here in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, we call it the black the Black Widow of Hazel Green, Elizabeth Rout, and she married six maybe seven husbands, and was accused of killing all of them, actually stood trial for it and was released because there uh-huh. wasn't any proof, and she chose poison. So uh-huh. yeah. the reason that we're able to reenact you know, her situation is because we have so many written records of how people described her. So in your situation, how did her neighbors or her friends or people in the town d- describe her character otherwise? Um, you know, they found her to be a difficult person to get along with. You know, there was apparently a lot of conflict with her neighbors, um, you know, various disputes over farm animals wandering over, you know, one or the other property. Um but, you know, nobody, you know, nobody had it. And, and, the, and when her, her, her second husband, Peter Gunnis, to whom she only remained married to for about eight months, you know, died under very, very, very suspicious circumstances. Um, supposedly he had gone into the kitchen to fetch his shoes, which he liked to keep near the stove to warm up and dry off after working in the fields all day. And and, and he, he, he bent over to get the shoes, and supposedly when he straightened up, uh, he knocked into a sausage grinder uh, that was standing <laughs> on the stove, and the sausage grinder supposedly fell off and hit him in the head, and, you know, he died that night of this injury. Um, and this struck many, many of the locals as a highly improbable story. And an inquest was held, and and uh, ultimately, you know, the medical examiner ruled that it was an accident. Um, but you know, but there was, you know, but but many people in the community at that point, especially, you know, began to look askance, you know, at, at Bell. Um, yeah, but she was, you know, she was uh, not fully integrated into the community in the sense that, you know, again, she's pretty much stayed by herself. Although I guess uh, uh, she was a very regular churchgoer, so that did speak in her favor, you know, to the townspeople. Um, but for the most part, uh, you get the sense that, um, you know, there's a great deal of hostility between her neighbors and Bell. That sounds just like our story here. But, I mean, let, let's be intellectually honest here, Harold. Uh, he knocked a sausage grinder over on his head. Yeah. Well, we all know that sausage grinders vice grip to the edge of a table. How, yeah. I mean, this one, how... I guess, <laughs> I guess this one was loose. Yeah, I mean, you know, there were, again, yeah, a lot of questions about it. Um, yeah, you know, sounds really like... Yeah. Sounds like Russian collusion to me. Yeah. Well, you know, and also she had already, you know, uh, her previous husband had also died under quite suspicious circumstances. Um, She was married to this guy uh, whose name was Matt Sorensen at the time. She was married to him for about eight years. They were living in Chicago, and uh, she had persuaded him 
to he had a life insurance policy, which, as I remember, was worth around two thousand dollars in like eighteen ninety eight money, um, considerably more in today's money. Uh, and she persuaded him that he needed more insurance, so he took out like a three thousand dollar policy. And there was a single day of the week when both policies would have overlapped, you know. Um, and on that particular day, uh, he returned home from work. He was a watchman, a night watchman at a, a Chicago department store, uh, seemingly very hearty. Uh, and after dinner, suddenly got really sick and then died. And, you know, it was like the only day on which Bell could have collected on both policies. So, um, yeah. So, you know, and, and, and the people, and, and after, after Peter Gunnis died, I mean, there were people who were aware, you know, that her husbands tended to die after yeah. being highly insured under strange circumstances. But um, but again, you know, she managed to get away with both of those crimes. And that leads me to my to my next question. I mean, I understand. I, I know <laughs> that we, back then we did not have the advantage of social media and the Internet and everything. But let's count them up. At the beginning of the interview, you said there's a possibility of 12 victims that we know of, just that we know of. Yeah. Well, let's say three or four into it, did these men not get any type of a warning or somebody say, hey, you you might want to rethink this one because she's been through four or five, six husbands. I mean, what was yeah. the attraction? Uh, even Well, I mean, you know, yeah. Well, these guys never got a chance to be husbands. You know, um, as with Helpline, what happened was, uh, you know, they would show up at her farm. Uh, she would often encourage them to bring their life savings with them. Um, but in the event that they didn't, as was the case with Helgeline, you know, she made sure that as soon as they showed up, they wired, you know, all their money from their local banks to the LaPorte Bank and then threw it. But as soon as she had the money in her hands, she killed them. So, I mean, she didn't marry any of these guys. You know, it wasn't like, you know, people were saying, um, yeah, what your image, they were saying, hey, you know, this one's already been married six times and nobody knows what happened to previous husbands. You know, these were guys that nobody knew. You know, she would often tell people that they were, she would usually tell people, you know, because people did notice, you know, these guys were coming and then like, disappearing, you know, she would just tell them that they were relatives, cousins from Norway, you know, who had dropped by for a visit, but she would dispatch them very, very quickly. So, I mean, in that sense, she was different from the traditional black widow, um, uh, you know, or, or the male bluebeard killer, you know, who marries a succession of uh, spouses and then kills them. You know, she was just luring them to the farmhouse and then killing them right away. Do you, yeah, do you, but do you think the kids, uh, the children, were aware of her killing these these men, or what do you think the kids were yeah. thinking? Yeah, um, we don't really know that. Um, I suspect, you know, a, you know, that she committed the crimes, you know, with a certain amount of discretion in the household. Um, you know, b. You know, as I'm sure we all know, you know, there's a lot of den denial that goes on, 
you know, there are people who live in very close proximity often, you know, to all kinds of horrendous killers and somehow manage to turn a blind eye to it. Um, and, you know, the kids who are very, very young, they just might not have really understood anything that was particularly going on. You know, Bell might have told them, oh, this is your uncle, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, then the guy would disappear two days later, you know, and she would just tell him, you know, he, he had to go back to wherever. So, uh, you know, I, at the, and so yeah, I don't know, I don't know. I suspect that the children had no real sense of what was going on, except for Jenny, you know, who was considerably older. Yeah. And obviously, you know, had, had uh, you know, had, had witnessed something or, or gotten wise to something, which is why she had to be disposed of. Yeah. Yeah, it just, I, I, I would think it would be pretty tricky uh, doing all that with the kids, um you know, coming and going and being around, uh, and being Snoopy, I, how kids are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, well, there is some indication, you know, that, uh, you know, she made the seller off limits to them uh, because there was some testimony by a teacher that the kids had come into school one day very, very, very upset, you know, because Belle had gotten furiously angry at them. Um, for having, you know, started to go into the cellar. So, you know, as far as that goes, you know, I, uh, uh, you know, I don't think they had a full awareness of what was going on. Do you, th- do you think she was getting a thrill out of um, cutting up the men? I, yes, I do think so. <laughs> um, you know, because there was no need to do it. Uh, you know, the, to me... Again, this is what makes Bell a true serial murderer, um, because the way I understand the phenomenon of what we now call serial murder, which is a kind of crime that has always existed, although it used to have different names, you know, there's always an element of sadistic pleasure, you know, that the perpetrator takes in inflicting, you know, some kind of, you know, bodily mutilation on the victim. Um, so, yeah, so I do think that um, because, again, there's no need to do it. And, and, you know, when you imagine, you know, what she was doing, you know, again, taking these guys um, who had come out there, you know, you know, believing, you know, instilling in these potential victims you know, the sense that they're going to be living these lives of ease and luxury, and she would be caring for them. You know, her letters to Andrew Helgelian, you know, she describes, uh, you know, she tells him, oh, you've been working so hard all these years, you know, and now you deserve to be taken care of, uh, and, you know, I'm going to be feeding you all of this, you know, Norwegian food that will evoke the memories of home, you know, just spinning this, again, really what is ultimately this sadistic fantasy, um, knowing what she really has planned for him. Uh, you know, and then again, you know, the guy comes there and, you know, within 24 or 48 hours, you know, he's just this piece of dead meat on this butcher block. <laughs> you know, that's, you, you know, you have to, 
you know, you have to, you know, you have to have a very, very powerfully sadistic component in order to do something like that. What do you think was the changing point? I know with her, with her husbands, she didn't cut them up, and the, the last one, I, yeah. you know, he he got hit over the head, and then uh, all that stuff. So, what all of a sudden changed? Well, I mean, in those cases. do that if she was hoping to collect on the insurance money, you know, which was obviously, you know, the main motive in terms of getting rid of her husband. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. Um, I'm not exactly sure, you know, I, I think possibly, you know, she now had a kind of, you know, lair, you know, a murder lair you know, in which she could give vent to these, you know, these terrible impulses. You know, before that, she was always living, you know, she lived with, uh, you know, her first husband in Chicago. Um, you know, also, you know, it's possible that her, you know, her, her pathology just escalated. You know, uh, you know when she tasted blood, as it were, you know, once she got away with murder a couple of times and that, you know, she allowed herself really to give vent, you know, to her most monstrous impulses. Wow. That's quite a story here. Uh, so did anybody ever, ever, ever uh, say they saw her after the fire or she was discovered anywhere? Or anybody? Oh, yeah. Oh, there was, eh? Oh, oh really? Yeah, there. Oh, yeah. Kind of yeah, like well, Elvis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, there are sightings of her all over the world, um, and, uh, and and they continue for decades. In fact, uh, toward the end of my book, I talk about this one case. In the 1930s, there was a woman named Esther Carlson in Los Angeles uh, who was, uh, was arrested after poisoning. Um, she was a housekeeper for some guy, and she poisoned him, and she also apparently turned out poisoned a husband. Uh, and uh, when when the police searched her uh, rooms, they discovered a trunk in which there was a photograph of these young children that were identified as as Bell's children. And uh, there were immediately immediate stories, you know, big headlines that Esther Carlson was Bell Gunnis, and the newspapers in Los Angeles would run photographs, you know, juxtaposing. Portraits of Bell and Portraits of Esther Carlson. Uh, she actually uh, had I get tuberculosis, I believe. Anyway, she died before she could be brought to trial. But they brought some people from Laporte who had known Bell to view the corpse in the mortuary, and uh, these people positively identified her as Bell Gunnis. Um, it you know it, it turns out that. She probably wasn't Belgadis. Um, there's been a, a, a guy from Selbu, Norway, in recent years, um, very obsessed with the case, and he came over here and did very, very extensive research into Esther Carlson's background. There's actually a YouTube lecture you can see that he gives on the subject, um, and he came to the conclusion that Esther Carlson was not Belgadis. But for many, many years, people were convinced that it, that, uh, that she was. Um, but in, certainly in the immediate aftermath of the crime, yeah, Bell was spotted um, in 
all over the United States, up in Canada, in Mexico, and Paris, everywhere. Yeah, as you say, like, you know, Elvis and many other <laughs> notorious criminals that get away. So, yeah, so. that's just crazy. Well, yeah. Well, it's been a, a very interesting story, and the book is fantastic. We'll have it linked up on our Thank website, you. as well as uh, anybody can uh, go right to uh, Harold Schechter's website. It's haroldschechter.com. Um, Harold, thank you very much for taking the time to talk about Hell's Princess. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Awesome, thank To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. <laughs>